Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 4th, 2021. Um, I'm speaking to you from San Francisco, California, on the edge of Silicon Valley. And as always in Silicon Valley, the, the talk is of artificial intelligence. Um, one of the headlines this morning um, is that the future of elder care is here and it's artificial intelligence, which is a nice way of saying that old people are going to get looked after by robots. Um, Wired Magazine this morning is warning us about not awarding developers and startups, but not ending up in the artificial intelligence hall of fame, ways in which the human condition will be exploited. Um, Elon Musk, who knows a thing or two about artificial intelligence, his partner Grimes was on TikTok recently, um, arguing that artificial intelligence, and I'm quoting this, is the key to the future of communism. I'm not entirely sure what she meant by that. Um, so the question always is, what separates humans from AI? What separates us? And I trust that we're all humans watching and participating in this from smart machines. Uh, I was really struck uh, a couple of months ago by a lovely piece in the Financial Times by my guest today, uh, Stephen Fleming, what separates humans from AI, he asks in the FT. And the answer is doubt. I'm quoting uh, Fleming here. Uh, Ever since uh, Turing devised blueprints for the first universal computer in the 30s, the singularity of our intelligence has become more precarious. In many arenas, humans have now been comprehensively outclassed, even in traditional tests of intellect and ingenuity such as Go, chess, and computer games. But while the algorithms behind those feats can seem stunningly intelligent, they currently differ from humans in that one crucial respect. They don't know what they don't know, an ability psychologists refer to as metacognition. Uh, and Steve Fleming is actually the author of a new book about metacognition, called Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. Um, Steve Fleming, uh, congratulations on the book and on the piece. I thought you did a wonderful job distinguishing smart machines from uh, you and I as humans. Um, is that the only thing that really distinguishes us as humans from machines, doubt? Well, first of all, thanks so much, Andrew, for that kind introduction and for the invite to to join you. And I think the yeah, the first thing I should say is that that headline in the FT. I stand by everything I I wrote in there. I didn't write the headline, so I don't necessarily um, align myself with the idea. It's the only thing um, that separates humans from AI, okay. and I I would get in trouble probably from my um, both my psychologist and my AI uh, colleagues if I if I push that line. So I think it is it was one probably, of the... It was a, uh, Steve, it was probably a headline created by a bot. <laughs> well, yes, that's ironic. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think it is an important one. I th and, and there are clearly other areas 
in which um, AI research is seeking to learn lessons from the human mind. So other areas such as the ability to generalize, so you can train a neural network to do one task very well, and that's been shown um, to an amazing degree by companies such as DeepMind in terms of beating the world champions at Go. But then if you try to take that algorithm that has been trained to play Go and use that trained algorithm to do something else, that is um, more challenging. And it's not it's not impossible, but it, it seems more of a challenge to generalize to other different tasks, whereas the human Go player can get up and you know wander out the room and do something completely different. And so this idea of kind of generalized AI, that's certainly an independent question to metacognition, although they might go hand in hand in some interesting ways. But the other the other uh, kind of key area that I was exploring in that piece was this ability to know what you don't know. And one thing that machine learning and AI researchers have known for a long time is that these kind of neural networks tend to be quite overconfident. So they're not very good at dealing with what people call out of distribution data. So they don't know how to, you know, what kind of confidence to ascribe to an answer for something that they've never been trained on before. And that that is, you know, a real problem because you can imagine a AI that's designed to be autonomous in the real world, you can never train it for every situation that it's going to encounter. So we wouldn't want our self-driving cars, for instance, to approach a new situation and think that they know the answer, think that they know what to do, and yet they're just overconfident about it. And this is something I think, you know, humans aren't perfect at it, but as I point out in the book, the human mind does have this fairly incredible capacity, I think, to think about itself, to doubt about what we know and what we don't know. Yeah, you you mentioned in the book, uh, you quote the philosopher, the British philosopher, I think he's British, uh, David, uh, Daniel Dennett, um, that the real danger um, uh, for us, not for machines, is overestimating the, 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 the intelligence of machines. Um, as you say, machines can't do that, but we humans can. Yes, yeah, and yeah. No, Dennett, Dennett is an American philosopher. Actually, uh, um, he's at Tufts University. He's he's written quite a lot on on consciousness, and um, he's now started to, as well, write in his recent book from bacteria to bark, which is, you know, a highly recommended read. Um, he's uh, he's started to approach a similar question um, from a different angle, which is that this idea that you know, it's not that AI is suddenly going to come in and, and take over like the sci-fi movie necessarily, but it, it seems to be poised to seep into areas of our lives um, and gain more and more control almost w without us noticing, really, because we just think it knows what it's doing. So we just let it let it do its thing. And in the, you know, towards the end of the book, I use the analogy of the autopilot on a on an aircraft which obviously has been around for for many years but there have been a couple of high profile cases where it seems to be one contributor to an accident has been the pilots spending just too much time monitoring the autopilot and not not keeping up their yeah hand uh, flying nick, skills um, nick yeah. Carr, my friend um i'm sure you're familiar with his work uh, he's in the the glass cage he warns us of that let's Steve, let's go back to the book because it's 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 a really uh, important work, I think, scientifically, philosophically, and it's still accessible. I was reading it this morning. Know thyself, 
the science of self-awareness. Let me quote from the book. You say, you're talking about the book. The big idea in this book is that the human brain plays host to specific algorithms for self-awareness. What does that mean? What is an algorithm? And perhaps you might very briefly also describe the human brain because uh, not everyone, everyone knows what the brain is, but not everyone will be uh, comfortable with a sort of a technical definition. Yeah, sure. And no, and thanks for the kind words about the book. I think it's, it's something that I've been working, for, I was working for many years on, actually. So I started this project back in 2013 as a postdoc when I was living in New York and I was starting to do research on metacognition. And I, it was always something I wanted to do, which was trying to write something for a, a wider audience, because that's how I got into psychology myself. I was doing a temp job in Manchester in the north of England where I grew up and I started reading books on from po the popular science genre on psychology and that's how I got into it so that's really the motivation behind trying to write a, a, a general a, a, a kind of a popular science book on metacognition um, and yeah the, the the notion of algorithms I mean an algorithm really has a very broad definition and in psychology it usually means the the way the system gets a job done Right. So you could think of having the goal of the system to be aware of its capacities. So that's how we would define self-awareness, this ability to reflect on and think about ourselves. So that's the goal that the system wants to achieve. It needs self-awareness for various functions. And we can, you know, we can talk about that as well, why we might have needed self-awareness in the first place. But if you assume for now that we need it and it's useful, then an algorithm is just something that gets the job done. You know, what are the comp the components, the building blocks, a bit like building a machine to do a particular job. We need to build a mechanism to to be self-aware. And we think that the human brain is a is an existence proof of that mechanism, that the human brain is a machine that is self-aware. And, you know, the, the people have been wondering about self-awareness for hundreds of years, um, philosophers thousands, have been thinking I mean, thousands, um, thousands of years. My opportunity yes. to throw Socrates up on the yes. uh, on uh, on the screen. I mean, I don't always do it, but when you have a book called "Know Thyself," of course, yes. that is borrowed from Socrates. Absolutely. So you know, the 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 ancient Greeks thought. Interestingly, they thought of self awareness as something as a work in progress, as something to be striven towards, and it was actually that that kind of idea that self awareness was somehow malleable or you know a construction got lost a bit actually in the if you look at the kind of enlightenment philosophers and then and then going into the birth of experimental psychology in the 1800s there was this idea that we have direct access to our minds and we can use self-awareness not as something to study or something to wonder about how it works but actually as a tool to to think about the mind and that didn't go very well because as we now know, metacognition, thinking about thinking, is prone to error in various interesting ways. So, you know, the, what, what we've been able to do as a field and in my lab over the past 10 years or so is to start developing tools to quantify metacognition in the lab. And the way we usually do this is by asking people to perform simple tasks and then rate how well they're doing on those tasks. So we might ask them how confident they feel in getting an answer right or wrong. And from a lot of those kind of judgments, we can build up a statistical picture of how good your metacognition is. So intuitively- if Good, you I mean, have, good in a moral yeah. sense or, or accurate in terms of the uh, truth about the world. <laughs> I'm curious, Steve, because 
um, you, you write again uh, uh, at the beginning of the book, which uh, a lovely uh, sentence, metacognition is a fragile, beautiful, and frankly, bizarre feature of the human mind, one that has fascinated scientists and philosophers for centuries. Not just uh, scientists and philosophers, of course, also artists. Is mm. metacognition then, are you limiting it purely to science? Because I get the sense that you're not entirely comfortable with that. No, I, I, I don't think scientists have a... Have a um have a monopoly on this at all i i um, but your lab is a it's a scientific lab you're doing you're doing uh scientific experiments you're not writing poems about metacognition no 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 not normally um that's right and i think that um you know there's clearly there's a broad church here we need we need multiple perspectives to understand something as multifaceted as human self-awareness i think that um the excitement surrounding the neuroscience at the moment is that, well, twofold. So one is we have, as I mentioned, the tools to, to study it, to quantify it in a more objective fashion than, say, psychologists were doing 100 years ago. When you say so tools, can, is this, um, you're not wiring people up. This is tools in terms of uh, data, of, 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 of number crunching. Is that fair? Yeah, this is this is tools in terms of um, experimental design. So how we can collect data from you in terms of your judgments, in terms of your performance on different tasks, and try and and then and then try and organize that in a way that tells us something about how metacognitive you are. Then tools in a different sense as well. So tools in a sense of progress in the technologies we now have to study the living human brain and that's really only been since the early 90s that we've been able to do that at a high degree of resolution so this is using technologies such as functional mri which allows you to track with a pretty good degree of precision the changes in blood flow at different small regions of the brain around the size of you know two, two or three millimeters um, cubed and that then allows us to build up these 3D models of how activation in different brain regions is changing, not just while you're lying at rest, but while you're actually doing a task, while we're doing a task such as trying to remember something or deciding about something. And in our lab, we use those technologies to understand what happens when we ask you to think about your own thinking, to think about whether you've got the answer right, to think about whether your memory might be real or imagined, to think about whether your perception is clear or fuzzy, that kind of thing. We're interested in this higher order ability for self-awareness. Are you inventing then a new science of metacognition? I mean, not me. Not you but personally, in, of course. In a lab, sense, yes. Is there a, is there a science of metacognition coming into being now over the last 25 or 50 years? Yes, I think that's 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 definitely the case. That it's only been since around the 1960s that the, the psychologists started to apply these measures. Um, to, and the behavioural economists, I assume, are, are, are in this business too. Yep, absolutely. And and then it's only really been in the past 20 years, 15 years, maybe that neuroscientists, cognitive neuroscientists like myself have started to get involved. And so we, we now have a field that we loosely call metacognitive neuroscience. 
And that is pretty young. That's really only the past 10 years or so. So, Steve, I mentioned Socrates earlier, of course, his uh, partner in crime or certain the person who, who, who wrote about Socrates was Plato. Um, you also, in your book, uh, write about uh, Carl Linnaeus, the uh, 18th century uh, scientist. You write about August Comte. And all these people are struggling with the idea of metacognition, even if they don't quite use that language or, or, or have your scientific tools. Very simply, what do you know now about us, about how we operate, um, that that Socrates and Plato and Linnaeus and Comte didn't know? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think that um, to take Comte, for example, so Comte was um, had this, this quote that I use in the book, which is that he, he struggled to imagine how a single organ like the brain could think about itself. So he had this thought experiment, which was like, well, if it's a single piece of machinery, how can one part then look at the other part, right? And at the time, because there wasn't as good an understanding of how different subsystems within the brain work, this was a reasonable um, challenge to, 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 uh, to make. Um, but now we have this idea that there is some sort of modularity in the brain. So it's not as if there's little bits that we can point to, like the engine or the brakes on a car. It's not completely segregated like that. But there are parts that are more involved in, say, vision, other parts more involved in um, hearing or memory and, and so on. And then what we've... Um, what the field of metacognitive neuroscience has started to discover is that the prefrontal cortex towards the front of the human brain is particularly important for building an internal model, if you like, of, of how these um, other cognitive processes are working. And so that starts to kind of um, resolve Comp's par par paradox because now it becomes easier to understand how the operation of different components within a single system might give rise to something like self-awareness. Is it making us wiser, though? You have one, one uh, chapter, which I, I think you probably write tongue-in-cheek slightly, emulating Socrates. <laughs> you just suggested that we've emulating Comte. Uh, are we collectively wiser about how we behave? It seems as if in the age of QAnon and, and, and so many other lies in the world that we don't seem to be any wiser. Is it just... Uh, Scientists like yourself who are getting it, are humans themselves, is this stuff filtering down to the ordinary person, to the, the Daily Mail reader, the watcher of MSNBC or Fox News? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, so I, I think the, it's important to distinguish progress in science from how that then impacts on the thought processes or the, the way people go yeah, about I, I their get, daily lives. I don't mean to um, interrupt, Steve. I, I get yeah. that. Um, but, you know, with medicine, for example, it's self-evident that that the progress of medicine has radically improved the human condition over the last 250 years. Um, yeah. What has to happen in your field to, to make us perhaps more truthful, more honest, uh, to make metacognition a more accurate gauge for how we think? about ourselves yeah. and the world? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think it hasn't happened yet, and that's partly because the science is young. And I think the way it can happen 
is in two ways. So first of all, I think I like to think anyway, that by just learning more about the science of metacognition by kind of us as a, as a species, understanding how our own self-awareness works and why it might fail, that can enable us to, um, develop a bit more intellectual humility. So I have a section in the book about how confidence is really important in belief formation. You know, it's easy for us to get trapped in these scenarios where we think we know the right answer and that everyone else is wrong. But actually, because our metacognition is has gone awry, that's an incorrect inference. We're, we're you know, we are, we're overconfident about that, about that decision. Now, if we recognize the situations in which that can happen, or just knowing that it can happen in the first place, I think that gives us a bit more of a, of, um, a you know, a perspective on how to develop more open-mindedness. So just learning about science and metacognition is one thing. The other thing that we've been thinking about quite hard is like, are there ways to more systematically in um, educational or institutional settings actually develop programs to improve metacognition and so one example I think that has had an impact is in the legal context in the United States, where it's now become increasingly recognized that eyewitnesses in a courtroom tend to be overconfident. They tend to have poor metacognition about mm. whether they actually saw what they did. And in certain states, I know of um, one case in New Jersey, there might be others. There's now the science of metacognition is now communicated to the juries in 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 summary form and they're told like you know you might think that the eyewitness evidence is very compelling and that they're very confident in it but just bear in mind that confidence can sometimes come apart from accuracy and so that can then help to downweight um certain certain pronouncements in in that setting yeah malcolm gladwell uh, writes about that in his new book as i mentioned at the beginning there is a an ai hall of shame according to wad uh, i'm I'm, I'm, I'm curious about a, a metacognition uh, hall of uh, shame in the future. In your book, uh, you write, many of us might be reluctant to receive brain stimulation or take drugs to boost metacognition, but we might be willing to invest some time in simply practicing being more self-aware. Are we on the slippery slope to Huxley's brave new world where this abstraction of metacognition becomes a justification for wiring us up for a mass taking of one kind of drug or another? Huh. I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the line in the book there was almost, maybe I'm naive on that, but almost suggesting that most people wouldn't want to um, go down that route in the same way that, you know, Governments might fancy it, though. Gov okay, I mean that's and, uh, that's possible. Big, big tech companies, especially companies controlling uh, AI platforms. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a bit of the Limitless film. I, I, I mean, I, I, obviously, if there were, if it was very clear that there were, say, no downsides, and it'd be very hard to test that or to, to 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 establish that but if if in a hypothetical world there were no downsides and you could just simply tick up your metacognition by a few percentage points by changing the kind of coffee you drank or something like that then i think that you know that would become obviously very attractive just like um 
drugs in such as Ritalin have become attractive for boosting concentration on short periods of time on college campuses and so on. So I think there's, you know, there's that area in which it's possible that that could become more widespread. But I think the lesson that we've learned from a lot of these things, like the Ritalin case, is that, you know, there's, it's, it's very hard to beat millions of years of evolution. So if you do boost one thing for a while, then often it means that you're kind of getting um, getting the downside somewhere else that might not come out for a, a while. You you might that, not yeah, notice and that's curious, Steve. Do you think that in an age of all this remarkable uh, scientific advancement in, 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 in understanding the brain and metacognition, that the downside is the growth of conspiracy theories of QAnon, both on the, I, I don't want to just blame the right, mm-hmm. the left is in, in some ways equally responsible. Everyone thinks of the world now, or many, many people in conspiratorial ways, uh, these global platforms like Facebook distribute this paranoia. Is that the first sort of inklings of a downside in our age of metacognition? Well, I, I would think that those phenomena and the fact that, you know, it's very hard now with a distributed media ecosystem and the rise of social media and so on, it is hard now to kind of pick and choose the information you're getting. So I wouldn't say that that's a sign of the, the downsides of metacognition. I would say it's a a reason to really invest in kind of, um, as I talk about um, in that quote that you you highlighted, invest in potential tools to to train um not not train necessarily in a formal way but if we can design the way we're presented with information to avoid things right. like illusions of overconfidence right. that we you now say, know the answer say, so to be fair, yeah because I, I don't want to misquote you you say we ask people to practice simple perceptual judgments for around yeah. 20 minutes a day so it's like sort of mental exercises as opposed to drug taking yeah, and that's just a starting point, right? So I, I don't think that's necessarily going to be w- the answer. But I think what we're trying to do with that is just see the limits of malleability, see where we can get in to alter metacognition in ways that might be beneficial. And one, th- one interesting thing about those studies is that just by practicing on a very simple game, perceptual judgments, we've found that there are then generalized benefits that you seem to improve metacognition on other things that you've never been trained on before. So that holds promise, this idea that metacognition might be relatively domain general and that if we improve it in one way, a bit like going to the gym, then has benefits for us in the ability to kind of play with our children and so on. That's the idea that like maybe there are ways in in kind of getting into the game, either in formal education or in 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 the case of the way information is presented and so on to boost the capacity for self-awareness in a in a beneficial way and you know that that i think is not a it's not it's not a downside of metacognition it just means that and i make the case in in that chapter that the the way information is presented to us in the model world makes it even more important that we're able to kind of have this check and balance on belief formation it's fascinating stuff steve um and you know, obviously you're a scientist and you present your work in scientific language. Many of our audience, though, are writers, um, artists of one kind or another. You quote Nabokov uh, on uh, metacognition. Um, he, he wrote, being aware of being aware of being. In other words, if I not only know 
that I am, but also know that I know it, then I belong to the human species. All the rest follows, the glory of thought, poetry, a vision of the universe. In that respect, the gap between ape and man is immeasurably greater than the one between amoeba and ape. I think uh, scientists, and don't take this personally, might have struggled to put it in, in, in such <laughs> uh, profound language. In the age of metacognition, Steve, what is the role of the artist? What, what happens to a Nabokov? Um, are they more, more perceptive? Do they have a different role or do they just continue writing books and poems and making movies? I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a wonderful quote. And I, I think I, you know, I actually use that almost as a contrast case because there is evidence that maybe, you know, we shouldn't be so black and white about animals, actually. So that's maybe a different story that actually yeah, animals might have some of show as well. That's another. Yeah. Interesting yeah. And, and so, I mean, in terms of, yeah, the perspective from the arts and, and writers, I think, you know, it's not going, I don't feel like there's a contest here or a competition at all. And I, you know, one of the beautiful things I think about the emerging psychology of self-awareness is that what we're starting to find is that this capacity for what we call explicit metacognition, so thinking about ourselves in a conscious way, this seems to depend on similar um, brain machinery that we use for thinking about other people. And that this provides, I think, a really lovely perspective on this idea that like, the way self-awareness might have emerged in the first place is by turning this capacity for thinking about others on ourselves. And this is exactly what, you know, is, is the bread and butter of novelists. Like when you sit down and get absorbed in a really good novel, what you're effectively doing is constructing the minds of people who don't exist. And you're then, I think one of the most amazing things about reading, you know, the best novels is that they then also re kind of, you know, they, 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 t they change the way that you then think about yourself. And that makes complete sense through the lens of the science of self-awareness as well, because if there is some shared machinery that enables you to kind of take a third person perspective on yourself, take a perspective on other people, then it makes sense that kind of, it, it gives new purpose, if you like, to, to the, to the, um, to the endeavor of, of, of writing novels. It doesn't mean that it, devalues it or science, science, you know, makes it too scientific in a way. I just think it, it gives a new, it, it gives a new perspective on, on why that's such a important thing for humanity to be doing. Perhaps uh, as, as uh, you suggest in your FT piece, uh, novelists are very good at doubting. I wonder, Steve, if they're also good in the area of empathy. We had Sherry Turkle, I'm sure you know her work, another leading thinker on AI. Uh, she has a new book out, The Empathy Diaries. She's written a lot about empathy, this human quality which distinguishes us from machines. Lots of other people have written about that too. When it comes to metacognition, what, what is the role of empathy? Can we teach machines to be empathetic or is that like doubt a uniquely human quality? I, yeah, I, th I think um, metacognition and empathy are somewhat different things so um psychologists distinguish between 
empathy, this kind of feeling, the ability to feel what other people feel effectively, and then this more cognitive level of actually thinking through what other people's mental states are, right? So those are two different things. You get the kind of initial visceral empathetic reaction, and then you get this higher level capacity to think about the other person. And it's that higher level capacity which seems to be more related to metacognition. So both are clear problems for AI that, and I don't know so much about the AI work on empathy, but there is plenty of AI work going on to think about ways of building social cognition into, into machines. You know, how, how could we best build in this capacity for a machine to think about another person? I think that's lovely. There's a, there's a really nice, um, uh, um, kind of way of uh, getting into that is through the film Ex Machina, where you know it's right. nicely dramatized this this capacity to think about what the other person is thinking and trying to infer whether they're you know yeah. who they say they are. Have you? Uh, I don't know if you've looked at um, the the new Ishiguro book, uh, Clara and the Sun, which is also focused very much on that. Yeah, I, I just finished it actually a few days ago. Um, and it, yeah, fascinating. And I thought there was a really nice line in that book um, about what does it mean to really, if you could kind of um, get to the level of scientific advance that enables us to effectively copy a human and make a humanoid robot that's almost identical, then what what is it about that individual that gets lost? Can they just keep on going? And I thought there's a really nice line there, which is that the one difference is that the human individual lives on in the minds and the emotions of the others, but the robot does not. And and so, you know, I thought I thought that was very nice. That was a really nice perspective because it suggests that actually, you know, when we're thinking about the difference between humans and robots, we shouldn't just think about it from the inside. We should think about how other people respond to that. And it was the tragedy of the book, which is so all too human, Steve, is that it was the one thing we wanted from robots in the Ishiguro book is we wanted them to replicate dead people. Anyway, uh, yeah, if you've read uh, Clara and the Sun, uh, Ishiguro's new, wonderful new novel about um, artificial intelligence, then I think a, a perfect um, uh, accompanying book, very, very different but also extremely interesting and intelligent is uh, Stephen uh, Fleming's Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. Uh, Steve, you're usually in London. I know your lab, your meta lab is at the University College, uh, part of the University of London. Uh, but you're in Zagreb at the moment in these strange, dark end days of COVID. In addition to your excellent new book, Know Thyself, what else should people be reading, perhaps to know thy that themselves? Yeah, so I, I think um, one thing, well, as well as Clara and the Sun, which I just finished recently, there's a book that I'm almost finished um, called Models of the Mind, which is from a, a colleague of mine, Grace Lindsay. Um, she's basically laying out how um, the computer model of the mind is is really important for understanding how the brain works and she writes in a beautifully accessible uh, way about about that project of computational neuroscience and then another book that i've really enjoyed recently is uh, morality by the late um rabbi jonathan sachs um and so he was one of the um leading uh moral voices in 
in UK uh, in the UK as a public intellectual. He died recently, um, but his last book was titled Morality, and it was a, a you know fascinating bird's eye view of what's you know the the, the current society um, and and how perhaps you know we need to we need to think subtly about how we how we change societal institutions universities social media and so on to try and make sure we don't lose um the the, the morality that we we sometimes take for take for granted um so i thought that was a very thoughtful perspective well great stuff uh, steve stephen m fleming the author of know thyself talking to me from zagreb Enjoy Zagreb, Steve, and uh, I'd love to have you back on the show. This is really important stuff. We're only just skimming the surface. Lots more to discuss. Keep well. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Andrew. It was great.